The text we consider this evening is found in Galatians chapter 6. It's a text we consider as applicatory, and it's in connection with the third part of true self-examination. We read that everyone examine his own conscience, whether he purposeth henceforth to show true thankfulness to God in his whole life. How is one to do that? To walk uprightly before him, as also, and here it begins to explain it, whether he hath laid aside unfeignedly all enmity, hatred, and envy, and doth firmly resolve henceforward to walk in true love and peace with his neighbor. And the text we have this evening touches on this matter of love for the neighbor, but beginning, beginning with one fellow believer and members of Christ Church. That said, we turn now to Galatians chapter 6. We're going to begin to read at verse 22 of chapter 5, 522. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. There's no condemnation for such a spirit, you see. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. That is, doesn't say, if we have the Spirit, you will walk. That may be true. But here is an admonition. We confess we have the Spirit, and the admonition is, well, then walk in the Spirit. Not calling to question whether you have the Spirit, but according to the Word, we must be exhorted to walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something, then he is, I may add, really nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove, that is, test his own work. Then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden, that is, everyone's going to have to give an account himself, how he has lived and how he has kept what we find in verses 1 and 2. The Lord will hold us accountable. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. That is, if we don't simply give it up as too much labor, too much required. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all. And the word men is added, of course, unto all, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. You see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand? As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. God forbid, but God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth let no man trouble me, where I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. That is, he, of course, also was persecuted for Christ's sake. 
he wasn't telling the truth, why did they persecute him? The very fact that he was persecuted by the Jews indicated he was telling the truth. Brethren, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Our text consists of those first two verses. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritually restore such in one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. As you know, for the most part, the book of Galatians deals with doctrine and the apostle opposing a false doctrine that arose in the early Christian church as those of Jewish extraction who joined the church for a time, a number of them tried to impose certain Jewish practices upon the New Testament church. Not that they deny that Jesus was the Messiah, and they had a certain outward good confession, Jesus is the Messiah. He died on the cross. His sacrifice was necessary for salvation, the shedding of his blood. He is the Lamb of God. But for all that, it wasn't just Christ Jesus. His, the shedding of his blood was necessary. But there was also other blood that had to be shed. And they bring in the matter of circumcision, which of course involved also a shedding of blood. And then with the circumcision, Jewish laws of the dietary sort, and not eating this unclean meat and that unclean meat, and bringing them again under the law of Moses, as it were, because only in that way would really one be justified and accounted as Righteous. One must add one's own works and deeds to Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness, necessary, essential, but not enough. Adding to his righteousness to be really fully righteous, that great heresy and the apostle dealing with that, of course, as though adding these works would make one more worthy of salvation, a plague upon such a thought. But having said that, the apostle does not want the people to understand, the church to understand. Therefore, since it's by faith alone and by grace alone works, that is, godliness is really not necessary. Oh, yes, it's necessary. Not to make oneself worthy of salvation, but it's necessary to show, show, that one has been saved indeed. If one will not live godly, all that demonstrates is one has made a confession, but it's an empty confession, and it's not really rooted in Christ. Because if it's a confession really rooted in Christ, then one is not only covered by the blood, but one has the Holy Spirit. And where the Holy Spirit is, there must be fruits, and they are fruits, you see, that are called into evidence by the preaching of the word. And that's the context of this chapter, the last two chapters, you might say, practical, what follows from the doctrine and dealing with the fruits of the spirit. That's why we began to read in verse 22 of chapter 5. For the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then how does that come to manifestation? Well, that's what you have in chapter 6 here. Chapter 6, which has to do with our text, and then in some ways culminates in verse 10. As we have opportunity, therefore, let us do good unto all, especially to them who are of the household of faith, beginning with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The fruits of the Spirit are to be shown in the body of Christ, in 
his church, with the members, you see. Because the Spirit has made us one body. He joins us together as one body, Christ's body. And our great obligation to Christ is to serve him. How do we serve Christ? He's in heaven. Can't make him a robe. Can't give him food. He has a body on earth. Fellow believers, minister unto my body. By ministering unto fellow saints, you minister unto me. That was Christ's calling. He came to minister unto. And of course he says, as I have done, you are to do likewise. He did that while on earth. He's now on heaven. He ministers by the Holy Spirit, but he also ministers, you see, through the labor of fellow saints, one with and for another. And that's what chapter 6 is about. Before we get into the content of the opening verses of chapter 6, let's remind ourselves that if we are going to minister unto one another according to the calling of the text, there's a certain spirit we better be free of. And what that spirit is, is found in verse 26 of chapter 5. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Desirous of vainglory. The reason I will labor in the church is because I want recognition. I want to impress others. I want others to think highly of myself or out of envy because so-and-so is getting too much attention. People are thinking too highly of this other fellow or person and I want that attention so I will bring them down a little bit. I will tear them down a little bit and put them in their place. That's an evil spirit, of course. That's not the spirit of Christ. And if one has that spirit, one cannot possibly minister in the name of Christ to his body and, as our text says, bear one another's burden. So our text is diametrically opposed to all this conceited notion of ourselves. As it says in verse 3, following our text, if a man think himself to be something, when really he, we are nothing in this regard, don't puff yourself up too highly in comparison to others, he deceiveth himself. And if we do, the Lord will see to it that he brings us low. So free of that spirit and praying to be free of that spirit so that we might live out of the spirit of Christ and according to the spirit of Christ and what that spirit is, is that attitude is, is in our text. A word that looms rather large there, you know, is meekness. With that in mind, beloved, bearing one another's burdens, and I suppose I could have said call to bear one another's burdens, but bearing one another's burdens, bearing what, bearing them how, and bearing them why. So fulfill the law of Christ. Bearing one another's burdens. Bearing what? The central admonition of these opening two verses has to do with bear ye one another's burdens. And then there's an explanation that is given to that, and that is defined and explained in the sense of if a man be overtaken in a fault, then restore such a one in the spirit of <coughs> meekness. One bears one another's burdens in order to restore those overtaken in a fault in the spirit of meekness. That tells us, you see, 
what burden, especially, the apostle has in mind in these particular verses. And in these particular verses, the burden he has in mind is not so much a man's suffering, affliction, grief, disease. There are verses that deal with that too and call us to be filled with compassion and bring good words when one is filled with affliction and grief and disease. But that's not what the apostle has in mind in these verses, however true that may be. The burden here has to do especially with sin and walking in sin and what we call error. That's why he says if a man be overtaken in a fault. Now that's an adequate word, but maybe not as strong as it could have been, though it's a translation, so the writers of the King James giving us an understanding of the word transgression. That's the word here, transgression. And that means one's trespasses, you see. There's boundaries that are set on one's life, and one decides, I don't want to live in accordance with those boundaries. I want to step over the boundary and trespass onto forbidden property. It goes back to Eve. Thou shalt not take of the fruit of this tree. She trespassed. She went to the tree, she looked at it, she heard words, and she took that which was forbidden because I have an appetite for it and I think I want to taste that for myself right now. Regardless of what God has said, I think I know better than God. This won't do me so much damage. I have to see for myself. That's the fault, you see. That's the trespass and that's what the apostle has in mind, that kind of sin, disobedience, which moves in the way of willful and even against knowledge and against who knows how many warnings. Now he's not discounting doctrinal error, as though the only fault here would be breaking of the commandments. That also must be kept in light, of course. One can be overtaken by doctrinal error. After all, this is found in the context of Galatians, and there were those in the church who were trying to promote this Judaistic idea, let's try to merge the atonement of Christ with the law of Moses and establish a righteousness that's kind of a combination of both, a cooperative effort. His righteousness and now our righteousness and one becomes Roman Catholic for all intents and purposes. And he's warning against that. And there were some who were buying into that a bit. Who knows how many family members were trying to lead them in that direction. And they had to be warned and addressed even by the members of the congregation. You see, he has certainly that has in mind. Or they have someone going to college. They've been taught six-day creation. And you go to these universities, though they have Christian written over the door, although they removed that too, it seems now. And now you have these men of knowledge and understanding who want to infuse the knowledge, the, the, the idea of evolution. Look at all the all the evidence and begin to persuade the youth to discount the first chapters of Genesis, which means in the end there goes Adam and Eve as well in the original sin. But let's discount all this. Here's all the, bio- here's all the geological evidence. And they willfully discount what Peter reminds us of in his second epistle, that the world that then was is not as the world that now is because there was a great event called the flood. And the flood has a lot to do with the geology that you'll read. But what's being done, of course, is to under 
undermine the very integrity and trustworthiness of God's word and where does it end? Not simply where will it end, where is it ending? Everything is up for grabs, isn't it? And against that there must be warning if one becomes susceptible to that. You're going into the wrong direction and it won't stop there. You're questioning God's word. It's going to finally even come to what it requires in your moral life with whom you may have relations. Be that as it may, that's also part, of course, of the apostle's concern. Nonetheless, his emphasis is especially upon what we might call the commandments of God and the defilement of those commandments, the ignoring of those commandments, what we call transgression. It's in the context, remember, of chapter 5 and what we read in verse 19 of chapter 5 is this now the works of the flesh are manifest which are these adultery fornication and cleanness idolatry witchcraft hatred variance emulation wrath strife sedition heresies envies murders drunkenness revelings and such what's interesting about that list beloved is where it begins sexual immorality that's instructive how the devil will assault. Seems that's the easiest door in which to enter into a man's life, to lead one astray on what we call the broad way that leadeth to destruction and in pilgrim's progress, vanity, fear, with the sexual immorality, adultery, as he mentions it, marital unfaithfulness, fornication, which is, of course, relationships outside, the sexual relations outside marriage, premarital, if you, if you will, and finally, every other kind of abomination as well. And you know, the apostle might as well have been reading, writing this for the 21st century. He writes this in the first century. Begins with, warning against sexual uncleanness, gives a list of words that all have to do with sexual uncleanness, but the nature of man hasn't changed, has it? They've just learned in the 21st century how to assault it with even a greater vigor so that you don't have to go too far down the road to find one of these places to feed the eyes. You can hold a little device in your hand and push a few buttons and there it all is, the world and all its flesh tones and living colors to what to ignite what? To ignite not love, but to ignite lust, and pretty soon it becomes an addiction. One is snared. One has been overtaken, if you will, will come in just a little bit more when that word over overtaken by Fault. But the list goes on. It's not just the sexual. There's also, of course, the matter of finances and business ethics and one failing to live as according to business ethics. Maybe it even begins with the, the government and one is not too inclined to pay what one owes the government, what, one, what the government requires. After all, you know what they're going to do with it. They're going to waste that money on who knows what immorality. Why should I give them good hard-earned money when they're just going to waste it and use it immorally? That doesn't cut it, though, does it? Christ said to his own followers, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, not because Caesar had any immorality. He was as immoral as they are today, but you're a citizen. Pay what you Oh, there is one who knows whether we are paying what we owe or holding back what we should not. And it may come to public knowledge at some point. And one maybe has financial issues and one has taken a risk and is overextended and now I'll just take one more risk to perhaps recuperate what I am losing and it goes on and on until one is snared by who knows what business practices just to keep 
afloat. And on we go. Drunkenness is mentioned there as well. Begins with a drink or two. And then where will it end? In the end, we consume and then it begins to consume us and to overtake one's life. And one who has too much drink certainly cannot walk in the straight and narrow way and be of benefit to us. You may be a danger to others, but you're not going to be a benefit to others. And the beat goes on. Gossip. Speech. And when we talk, not to build up, but it's to find faults, tear down, and put others in their place, which means, of course, I elevate myself by demeaning others and reminding everybody else of others' faults in one tongue is carried away and carried away and carried away and as the Proverbs say these things ought not so to be or vulgar language the use of the tongue in the world to be part of those with whom you, you labor they talk that way well I don't want to appear to be a goody goody as they say so pious so your language becomes corrupt as well and profane one is overtaken by these faults and understand beloved the apostles not simply talking about hypocrites in the church you may have them in the church who are just going through the motions part of the fabric of a family they're not going to leave it they have no interest in spiritual things they may even come to the table and partake who will know but deep down they're of the of the world and simply putting on a show that's not who the apostles talking about? He's talking about believers, brethren, sisters in Christ. Scripture's filled with it, you know. Hebrews 11. When we think of Hebrews 11, what do we think? We talk about the heroes of faith. And who by faith obeyed God and did these things that are rather astonishing and exemplary. Noah, before rain, build an ark. Labor, let him mock, let him reproach. And he did. An example to us all. And he gets on the other side of the flood and he learns how to plant vineyards and make alcohol and he's found to be drunk. And it probably became almost a way of life for him before it came to a head, you know. Abraham, father of believers, he lied concerning his wife, not once, but twice twice to save his own skin. Shall we go on? David is mentioned by name, not expounded on, but David, man after God's own heart, an example to us of a spiritual warrior, adultery, murder, cover-up. Do I have to mention Samson? And the bosom of Delilah? And the list goes on. And don't think, beloved, that's just Old Testament saints. They didn't have the spirit. Oh yes, they had the spirit. Not in the fullness we do, but they had the spirit too. And yet they fell into these lamentable, grievous sins. In the New Testament, you ever hear of a man named Simon Peter? And consider what Saul of Tarsus, who was of Jewish extraction, what he was guilty of. You may say previous to the faith, but still sins of which he was guilty. And then he writes the first to the church of Corinth and all that was going on amongst the saints there as having been delivered from their paganism some fell back into the old ruts and had to be warned and disciplined overtaken by the faults beloved and so we must understand the power of sin and that's what the apostle is bringing home when he speaks of a man being overtaken in a fault that has to do with the picture of something pursuing one and then taking one by surprise. But the apostle's not using the word here to get across the idea that when sin overtakes one, we have no idea why it overtook one. I'll get to why he uses that word overtaken and even the instance of surprise. But it has to do, you know, with foolishness and behaving in a foolish way and then there's consequences and one is snared by the sin 
becomes guilty of the sin. An example, a homely example, would be you in your home and you have a couple of rambunctious boys or grandchildren playing in the living room and you suddenly hear this great crash and you go around the corner and yeah, there is that vase that you got from grandmother or something and it's shattered on the floor and they're standing there with great big eyes. What have we done? We didn't mean to do it. We didn't mean to do it. And they're laying along the wall as a football. No, they didn't mean to do it. But they were playing football in the living room and throwing the ball around, which they knew, of course, was against the rule of the house. So there's consequences. We didn't intend this to happen fully, but it was because they were behaving in a foolish way, and this is the result of it. And so it is, you know, when saints can be snared by sins, overtaken. The devil is there like a, a leopard. You can picture the African field, and you have antelope, and they're all gathered together, grass, and there's this greener grass, this taller grass off to the, off to the right, because there's water there, but the experienced antelope are staying away from that taller grass, however green it may be. But one of the younger ones sees that greener grass. I'm going to go over and take that greener grass and gets what's lurking in that greener grass. Yeah. A leopard. Talk about being overtaken by a fault. That particular foolish young antelope pays for it with his life. And there comes, you see, this matter overtaken. Not that sin overtakes one, but the power of sin, even with respect to believers, with respect to members of the church, become snared like Samson in the bosom of Delilah or other names can come to mind as well by alcohol who knows what. It surprises one from a certain point of view, the power of the sin Itself, and one has been overtaken, and you call the fault, the trespass, and the burden with which one, as it were, is somewhat powerless to extract oneself. It's there, it has hold of one, and not now to be able to let it go, to forsake it, to turn one's back on it. And one needs help and assistance, don't you see? And that's what the apostle is getting at here, even in the body of Christ, as he exhorts members to be aware of this with respect to themselves, that as it's true of ourselves, it can be true of others, and where you see this taking place and having happened, to deal with it. It must be dealt with, you see. That brother must be dealt with, that sister. Assistance may be given to extract oneself from the snare of this sin and even from certain maybe of its consequences. Ye who are spiritual, restore such and one. What the apostle is saying is that this does not simply fall upon office bearers. It may fall upon office bearers. That's true, but he's saying this is part of the business of the whole body of Christ, the members of the church according to the office of all believer, those who are spiritual. And by spiritual, he's not seeking to divide the church into the spiritual and the carnal, as though those who are taken by the sin are simply carnal. They may also have the spirit, but they are not at that time governed by the word of God. He's talking about those who are governed by the word of God and have by grace resisted sins and these temptations. And so being free from that as the spiritual seek to restore one who has been overtaken. That's an interesting word, that word restore, calling to restore those who have been overtaken, overpowered, if you will, by this fault, by wandering and trespassing and partaking of forbidden things. 
restoring doesn't have simply to mean, doesn't simply mean, well, you want them to get back into the life of the church and to be restore them to full membership. That may be the, the goal. But it has to do with how one brings one back into the membership to forgiveness and to walking once again in the ways of godliness and resisting evil and temptation. It's a medical term. Mending one. Like a man who has fallen and broke his hip. And if you've fallen and broken your hip, you're not going to walk very far. You're going to need assistance if you're going to get to the physician. And there's the key. One has fallen, as it were, ensnared by the sin. One has broken a bone, one's own hip. One is no longer walking in the way one ought to, and one seems to be powerless to find that way, to walk in that way again. And one must give assistance and help to one. And we must be useful in the way of the mending of the broken bone, if you will, that one may walk once again in the ways of God's approval. But you say, I can't mend a bone. I can't Make a bone straight? No, of course we can't. We aren't physicians, are we? But if you found a man in an accident or something with a broken hip or thigh, you would help him and bring him to a physician. And the physician would set the bone and then wait for the body to do the wonder of mending as God has created man. But there's the key, isn't it? How do we restore? We take him to the physician. And who is the great physician? You know who the great physician is. Christ used me to bring my brother to Christ Jesus himself as the great physician of the soul, that he may do the mending. And when you bring him to Christ, it's not simply, you know, when you deal with one who has been snared, that you speak of the mercies of Christ, you may get to the mercies of Christ. But you remind one, you call yourself a Christian, how you're living, you realize how displeasing you are to your Lord, Christ Jesus, concerning whom you have made a confession, you know what he requires, you know what discipleship is, and you've left the way. You've sinned against your Lord. You didn't just displease me. You displeased Christ, the one whom you call your Savior. Come to your senses, man or woman. And you set him before this Christ Jesus, who, as we saw last Sunday week, does not approve of sin and simply dismiss it, but calls sin, sin, and confronts one with it, and then calls one to repentance and to cast oneself upon the mercy of this same Christ whom one has offended to be forgiven and to be restored. And it's not simply a matter of forgiveness. It is a matter of forgiveness. But we need more than forgiveness, beloved. We need the operations of the Spirit to give us spiritual strength. We must feed on Christ that way too. That's why in the table, you know, there's, blood, there, there, there's broken bread and there's poured out wine. The sufferings of Christ in our stead to payment for sin. But then we eat the bread. And we drink the wine. And we remind ourselves, this Christ Jesus also feeds us. He feeds our soul. He's the one who gives us spiritual strength to walk again. And we must seek to feed on him day by day, not just four times a year. The table represents how it must be going day by day, really. Sacrament to seal upon us that reality and to confirm that promise and quicken us in that faith, but to feed on Christ as we need him day by day. But the point is, as fellow, what the apostle is saying is that as fellow Christians, as brothers and sisters of those who have been snared, we are to bring one to Jesus. And one brings one to Jesus by sometimes coming to the one and confronting one with what one knows and calling one 
to confess it, to acknowledge it, to repent, and to leave it behind, and to follow Christ, and to do that patiently and sometimes with a persistence because on the first confrontation it may not go so well. Who are you that you should confront me with this? Or You think you're, you're perfect? I could tell you about your sins too, you know. And then that's where the meekness comes in, doesn't it? Because if the response is not one of welcome, but is abrasive, well, we have our human natures. You talk to me that way? Okay, forget it. I'll talk to you that way too. Meekness has gone out of the window. In the spirit of meekness, a willingness to suffer some abuse, and not to respond in kind, but to respond maybe firmly, but in brotherly love, to warn and to remind patiently those who are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. In other words, what the apostle is saying, don't have this idea, you learn about a sin, you see someone behaving foolishly in the church, and this is contrary to God's word, and it makes a bad reputation, and all we do is criticize and condemn and say, let's live that way, go ahead, I'll ignore it, I hope he takes care of himself, or somebody else does, but it's not my business. Oh, yes, it is. According to knowledge, it's your business. It's my business, not simply as an office bearer, but in the office of all believer, in accordance with this text of the apostle. Because when you take the attitude of criticism simply and condemnation, the fool, walking, living, doing, doing those things, it's as if you say, but I'm immune to those things. Well, we may not fall into that particular sin. But let him that standeth take heed lest he also fall. Because though I might not be so susceptible to that particular sin, the devil knows where I am susceptible, what they say my Achilles heel is, and he will seize upon that. And if I have lifted myself up in some kind of a conceit or some kind of a vain glory, and an exaltation, elevation of self. The devil has a way, and God has a way of giving us over to that, and we ourselves fall and find ourselves we are not so different after all, are we? So, in the spirit of meekness, as a sinner going to a sinner, a sinner saint to a sinner saint, and reminding the brother of what Christ hath done for me. I don't come here simply to condemn you. I come here knowing my own weaknesses, my own sins, and what Christ has done for me and how I have need him day by day. And you do too. And his ways are the ways of wisdom. They are the ways of spiritual health and strength and to know God's approval, not in the ways of sin and foolishness and being snared by this fault but I can't extricate myself. Of course you can't. None of us has the spiritual strength. That's why I remind you of the name of your Lord and Savior, the great position of the soul. There is power in the blood, power on the basis of the blood. There's mercy in this Christ. And you're telling me a Christ Jesus who delivered a man named Saul of Tarsus from his hatred and the power of sin in him and set him free? Can't set you free? Have you sought? Have you prayed? Have you come in the proper spirit? There is power in him. Seek it. And the grace is there of the Holy Spirit. And I will pray for you and I will pray with you. And I will persist in that. And brother... I'll be back again to see if you're making any progress because I love you in Christ Jesus. And what's impossible with man and of self is possible in him. I tell you, I know it for myself. In that spirit, you see, one keeps 
the law of Christ. Before I get to that briefly, I want to relay to you a little history. I could call it a story, but it's more than a story. It's a history that was relayed to me by an older elder some years ago who had served in a previous congregation, and in the previous congregation as an elder had to go on a discipline call with a fellow elder to a young man who was of the age who should have made confession of faith and passed it, but he had not, and he was careless in his youth and not so interested in spiritual things and did not frequent the house of God. He could be seen now and again and found now and again, just, if you will, to keep his papers from being himself from being erased, and they had to work with this young man, this older elder back then told me of his experience with this young man and they had to visit him and they would call and say we're going to be at your house where he was living with a a friend who would help him pay the rent on such and such a night and they came to the door and they knocked and they knocked and he did not answer. They saw his car, they were quite sure he was there but he didn't, didn't answer. When they called him later he said oh I didn't happen to be home. Well, we saw your car. Well, I was with my, my friend someplace. They're quite sure he was not telling the truth, so he was adding negligence of, of church. He was adding lies to negligence of, of church and so on, and putting off that which was spiritual. Well, we're coming next week. Well, next week he answered the door. Now, this elder talked with this young man later. And the young man said, I finally answered the door because I realized you're going to be back again. And I'm going to have to deal, I would have to deal with you sooner or later. So this is the second time. It's going to be a third time. I will simply face the music. Here what you have to say and send you on your way. That was my intention. And he did. He heard what they had to say as they talked to him about his carelessness, his foolishness, where this was going to end up and calling to repentance. They saw him in church now again. They were quite sure he was hung over. There was alcohol involved as well. He said, that young man, you left as elders, and my friend came out the door from the bedroom. And I apologized to him. And I said, I'm sorry that these men come all the time and intrude into our our living, but they just won't give up. This friend of his had been raised in a Reformed church too and was delinquent. And this young man said, well, at least you have men in your church who are interested in your well-being. He said, I've not gone to church for almost a year. I haven't had a visit from an elder. I don't know if they know I'm alive or dead, and I don't think they really even care. At least you have some who are interested in your well-being and where you're at. Think about that. And that young man thought about that. And he told the elder, I considered what you had said to me about salvation, about Christ, my need to repent, my need to learn the ways of wisdom, put aside my foolishness, and I weighed what my friend said and realized, you know what? That's the truth. Here's a body of people who are interested, actually interested in my well-being, even in my salvation. And he says, that's why I was back in church the next Sunday. And what's interesting is, he was back in church with that young friend of his. They both were back in church, although this was a different church for the young man. And the young man came to his senses like the prodigal, confessed his sin, made confession of his faith. And so did his friend, who also became a member of Christ's church and left the ways of foolishness and being snared by the deception of the evil one. And the young man said to the elder, I'm so thankful for the mercies of Christ, who did not disown me, but forgave my sins and received me, and for using you as a member of Christ's church to bring me to my senses. And now I have hope and I'm not given to despair, which was the way I was heading, in the way I was living. Beloved, a reminder of the truth of this word, whom the Spirit can use and will use with every instance? No. 
but if one is his own, these are the means he uses, even in the body of Christ, one with another, confronting one another in the spirit of love and meekness, as we have an interest in the well-being, not only of our own souls, but of those who are Christ's own. And so we fulfill the law of Christ. Interesting. doesn't say the law of Moses, though it has in mind commandments, but it calls them the law of Christ. It didn't just say obey, but fulfill. That's simply a matter of obeying the commandment and doing what it says, but fulfilling. And what it has in view, then, of course, is how Christ described the law. What's the greatest of the commandments? Love the Lord thy God and thy neighbor as thyself. And deal with your neighbor, especially your brother, as you, in the end, would be dealt with yourself. And so fulfill the law of Christ. That is, please him and imitate your Lord and Savior. Beloved, we partook of the table this morning. It takes us back 2,000 years when the supper was instituted by Christ with bread and wine. What did Christ do prior to the administration of that first supper? He put a towel around his waist, didn't he? And he knelt at the feet of his disciples and he washed their feet. Which wasn't simply serving them, but indicating even the washing of the whole. Simon Peter said, oh, not, not, not my whole body, no. I've washed you completely. Serving. And then what did he say? As I have done it unto you, so do ye one to another when I am gone. I will use you to minister myself to them. Remember, beloved, as you have done it to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. And that's gratitude. As Christ has forgiven me so many sins, and he has not despaired of me, but worked by his grace and spirit. So use me, use us, Father, in bringing one another to Christ. Unity in love. And what a witness, beloved, of the power of grace itself. Amen. For thy word we give thee thanks, give us understanding, and we follow after Jesus, grant us his spirit, based upon not our works, but upon his blood, that we might be of service to him, and minister one to another, and be of benefit to his body. And in that way, even be of benefit to the church universal. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.